There's a place here at the table Your coats go by the door You can kick your shoes off in that pile on the floor I hope you wore elastic Cause your waistband's gonna get tight Take time's done, we're having a night Hi friends, I'm Sophie and I'm Ari, and you're listening to Having a Night, Reviving the Lost Art of the Dinner Party. You heard it here first. The revival is coming. Maybe we should change it to Having Revived the Lost Art of the Dinner Party. We're moving on to other party types. <laughs> but I also feel like, I feel like dinner parties are back. I went to like an actual party this past weekend. I was out until 3.30 a.m. First time I've done that in a year and a half. I was drunk out of my gourd. I'll tell you that much. It was very weird. A lot of people were doing a lot of drugs. Very not my vibe. Wow. Where? Uh, Somewhere in LA. I don't know. Tell me the address. (laughs) I definitely like invited myself to this party. And now there are no Uber drivers left in LA. Like most of them have quit, which good for them. So it takes you like at least 30 minutes to hire an Uber. So, you know, you're there at a party and you're like, God, I'm trying to leave here. God, I'm trying to leave. But you're like stuck in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Wow. Like olden times when it was just taxis. Yeah. Oh, the olden times. The olden times when you Um, actually had to have a designated driver. Yeah. Yeah. That's It's crazy. So I was in Florida, as you know, but our listeners don't know, um, for a wedding and then a little vacation last week. And obviously... I don't know if we have a Florida listeners. I'm sure we do, but you know, y'all are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's outside there. It's so nice. So, and we were all fully vaccinated. So we felt fine, but the, I I started to notice in myself, like the impulse to not want to wear a mask, like the sudden inconvenience, whereas it had become this inherent, like habitual thing of like, Oh, I got my keys. I got my phone. I got my mask. I got my wallet. Or like, Oh, I'm, um, I'm going inside. Boop. Here goes my mask. I'd like, you know, walk from um, the beach into the lobby of the hotel and I'd be like, like, I cannot be bothered to put this on. (laughs) Totally. I was having the same thing with hair yesterday. I was like, I just can't wait until masks really aren't a thing. And he was like, Sophie, it's not that much of an inconvenience. I was like, oh, that's right. It's only since the CDC has announced that like, if you're vaccinated, you cannot wear a mask in certain situations that suddenly we're all like, oh God, the masks though. I know. I know. It's amazing how quickly it shifted from being like, masks aren't a big deal. Just wear them. I don't even notice I'm wearing one. And now I'm like, I need to let my lower half of my face free. Wait, I have been meeting so many people recently who I have never met without their masks. And then it's so weird. It's so weird because I never realized like how much my brain fills in the lower half of someone's face. Yep. Yep. Turns out your eyes don't say anything about what the rest of your face looks like. Not a fucking thing. I know. I'm weird. I have uh, some of the people that I was cooking for that I'm still cooking for. I had just only met them with masks on for months. And then they had gotten vaccinated before me. So like the month before I left, like in March, they started interacting me without masks. And I just, it was, it's still shocking to me when I think about them or when I see them, like, that's not how you used to look. But how they used to look is just what I made up in my head. So you're like, oh, how you've changed since right. I've known like you. Right, like you really, something happened. But no, it's 
It's like that game where you where you draw like the top half of a face. Yes, exactly. Exquisite corpse. Exquisite corpse. What a great name. Beautiful name. We should open a what a vintage store named Exquisite Corpse. I think there probably is one. You know what? That name is so good. It's not worthy of of that game. But it kind of is because think about how amusing that game actually is. It's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going right. to go play some exquisite corpse later on. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Just one last thing about the mask thing. I actually like, harbor a fear that people who have seen me only with my mask on, then when I take off my mask, they're like disappointed. They're like, oh, I thought you would be more this or that. And now that I've yeah. seen you, I'm, you know, turns totally out you're an ogre. Ways. Yeah, exactly. I'm always like, oh, you didn't know my nose was this big. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, what'd you eat this week? We were in Florida and we've spent, the the wedding was in Naples. And then we went to this little island, Sanibel, for the next five days, which is somewhere I have been going my whole life because my grandparents used to have a house there, RIP. And uh, it was the first time I'd been back since they passed away. So it was very like, it was, mm-hmm. it was really bittersweet and nice. You know, in my head as a kid, we would go, we'd mostly cook, but there were a couple of restaurants we would go to. I'm taking a roundabout way of saying that like most of the food there was terrible. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> and just so shocking because it's an island in, on the Gulf and there's so many fishing boats and it's like, feels like most of these restaurants are, have like frozen fish sticks and are, and chicken fingers and like right. are not actually serving you the fish that they're catching, which is Very so bizarre. frustrating. So shout out to like the one place we went that had good fish. It's like. If I had to have another fried shrimp taco or, you know, blackened grouper sandwich, oh, I was yeah. going to kill myself. This was like when I went to, um, when we were seniors in high school, we went to Nassau in the Bahamas and it was, obviously this is very different, but it was like a, you know, all you can, what was it? Like you get a bracelet basically. Only place that we were allowed to eat were um, a Sbarro's pizza no. and a place that did like basically deep fried seafood. So I was eating no. Sbarro's yeah. for breakfast and deep fried conch for dinner. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> conch chowder. Like, <laughs> I am so sad. What did you eat this week? Well, it is artichoke season, which is so exciting and rather brief as well. Obviously, in this day and age, we can get artichokes anywhere, anytime, but like the actual artichoke season with heirloom varieties is short. So I was <laughs> at, you know how I feel about a Hillstones, Houston's, mm-hmm. whatever it's called in your state. Get um, me in. It's so weird though. Cause it's a chain, but it's so perfect. I don't understand how they're like able to maintain the quality. I think there are other good chains. We can play a game later or Ooh, yeah. table that for chip hour. Love it. Good idea. Best chains. So they had a special of like this, this organic heirloom artichoke variety and they just grilled them. You know, they always have, they've got a wood grill going at the Hillstones. They (laughs) grilled them and then served them with like a little tartar sauce, but it was just, you know, when a a fruit or a vegetable tastes so essentially like itself, like I could not have imagined anything more artichokey than what I was eating. It was just delightful. Really good. Delicious. Did you happen to drink wine while you were eating the artichoke? I did not. So I was very hungover from that party that I had gone to on Saturday. And then I flew and like was such a mess. I was like, I really need to cool my jets with the alcohol. 
And as we know, artichokes fuck up your palate. So it was perfect. Like you poured a pack of Splenda into your mouth, every beverage. Yeah, but it's so cool, actually. It's like so amazing that a, that a vegetable can have that effect on you. Yeah. Remember that like weird street drug that everyone was taking that was like, all it did was make sour things taste yes. sweet. Yes. I love that you're calling it a that. sweet drug, a, a street drug. It was a uh, sweet street well, drug. It was sweet, sweet street drug. Exactly. Um, miracle berry. Wasn't it? Oh, I remember taking it and typical of me as, you know, I get paranoid when I smoke pot, blah, blah, blah. I was like, this is my palate forever. I was like freaking out, even though it clearly doesn't affect any part of your brain at only. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's a little terrifying because you're like, I don't want to taste like this. It's nasty. Right. Like, I don't want to be be able to eat a lemon like an orange. Right. Yeah. Like, I must be thinking about my teeth and the state of my enamel. I think I drank a lot of beer when I took it because like beer tastes like? to take on this really different flavor. It just tastes sweet, basically. It tastes like you're drinking Coca-Cola. All right. I also just wanted to quickly discuss the fact that Oatly is about to go public. Yeah. And they have a $10 billion valuation. I know. I know. Like, I don't see how that's possible. I mean, well, it's possible because their investors are Blackstone, the company behind Anheuser-Busch or like the money behind Anheuser-Busch and like a huge Chinese conglomerate, which is crazy. I'm like, it feels very far from Swedish oat milk. What are your thoughts on like on non-dairy milks? Where do you stand on them at the moment? I know these things. Oh, I'm, I'm oat all the way. I'm so into an oat milk latte. I, it just seems like the most sustainable. I think it tastes the best. Yeah. Cause you know, some, I mean, we all know what's going on with almonds and like water in Los Angeles and just the farming problems with some of these nuts, but yeah. it seems like oats, um, they're not depleting the earth maybe yeah. or the soil yeah. as much or the water supply. Also, it seems like oat milk is the easiest probably to make, even though this is about a $10 billion company. Like, I think you can just like, literally, you don't have to, um, you don't have to strain them. I think you just blend them with water and you have oat milk. Yeah. Well, and then you, you do have to strain it after, but apparently there's a thing of like, if you blend it for too long, then it gets a little sticky and gross. Oh yeah. I'm interested at this point. I'm kind of like, I'm into cow milk. I just really, yo, yeah, yeah, yeah. But have been for a while. I'm like, if you're getting good organic cow milk from a farm that is familiar to you or from like a small producer, I would way rather have that. But wow, you've come full circle. Okay. Hold on. Let's talk about our guest, Ani Favia. Oh my gosh. She was so lovely. We had such a nice time talking to her. We did. She is a viticulturalist. No, nope. viticulturist. Viticulturalist. Culturist. Oh, um, she's a winemaker. Uh, Favia wines. She is a tea maker or a tea. She's uh, just an incredible like woman. She's like a golden goddess of California. Yes. Oh my God. I mean, you guys, you guys should also look up photos of her because she truly has like the perfect California aura. And then she's yes. growing these herbs for this tea. One of them is called Mount Olympus, which is so beautiful. She sent us some of her teas and they are so delicious. And like, really, for some reason, the word wholesome comes to mind. Like they're mm-hmm. just so essential and perfect and uh, just wonderful. Right. Everything is like from the earth. She just yeah. feels so like an earth mother, so connected to vegetation, grapes, tea leaves, everything. Like she, it's like, she has a homestead out there 
when I met her in Where person she lives. in New York, she lives in California, but she was visiting her daughter in New York. And she like brought me the most beautiful bouquet of flowers from like a flower shop that I had never heard of where I'm like, you're not, you don't even live here. And yet you found the the perfect thing that like encapsulates you and your lifestyle. It was just, she's really wonderful. So kind. And we learned, of course, as usual, so much about wine, but also about the Napa scene and about viticulture, which is quite different from mm-hmm. like being a winemaker is different from being a grape grower is different from no. From being a wine drinker. Yes. We got Annie's information. We got hooked up with Annie from our friend Sheila Marikar, who was on the show earlier this season, who's a fabulous uh, writer, journalist. And she's just a fan of, uh, of Annie's wines. And that's, you know, this podcast, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It yeah. really is. Of, of incredible women, men too, but really the women... We just keep making all these friends that now potentially we can go see. So, Annie, we are coming to drink your wine and your tea on your homestead with you. Yes. Please enjoy the fabulous Annie Favia. Wait, hold on. I have one more thing to say, which is that <laughs> when I was taking Latin in middle and high school, we used these books called Ecce Romani. And mm-hmm. one of the protagonists was named Flavia. So oh. when I read Favia, it makes me think of Flavia. Although in Latin, it would have been pronounced Flavia. So if anybody out there used Ecce Romani, um, this, is, this one's for you. Hello, everybody. Here we are with the fabulous Annie. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. We are Um, always so excited to talk to wine people because I feel like wine is something we are constantly drinking. And but the problem is then, you know, you get drunk and you can't I can't retain any information about the wine. So whenever we've got we've got a specialist on, I'm like, please tell me everything. Remind me. Because I, it's it's hard. Don't you think that's hard? Not enough people talk about that. <laughs> oh, I think it's very hard. The number of wine classes that I've taken compared right. to the amount of information that I've retained. I mean, the balance is way off. Way off. I mean, I feel like maybe we should just start with you began as a viticulturalist, which is not the same as a winemaker. Yeah. So a knowledgeist or winemaker is the person that actually takes the grapes and brings them into the winery and ferments the grapes into, uh, into wine. And when I started back in the nineties, that was a time when there was a pretty clear separation between viticulturist and winemaker. And the viticulturists were in the vineyard, working with the vineyards, planting the vines and tending the vines and, um, and then they delivered the grapes to the winery. And that was where, you know, the kind of the job stopped. But that was a time when really great wineries started getting more curious. Small wineries started getting more curious about both sides of it. And um, it was, I think, the time when you would start to see great winemakers in the vineyard earlier and earlier in the season. You know, they used to show up for sugar sampling at the end of the season. Right. And now, you know. My husband's a winemaker. I'm a viticulturist. So I have all the final say in the vineyard for Favia and he has the final say in the winery, but a lot of what we do, we do together, which is pretty cool because they're both totally related. You know, if you don't have the raw materials the way that you want them, meaning the grapes. So like if you haven't mm. done a job in the vineyard all year, then the winemaking is somewhat limited. So, and we make our wines very naturally. So there's not a lot of manipulation. So we kind of, it makes the, the raw material even more important. 
Something that I noticed though, when I was on your website is like, you don't seem to be like, we are a natural wine. Like we are making natural biodynamic wines, which I feel like a lot of other wine labels obviously are doing. So what was the thought that went into that? Well, we um, started a long time ago and back then, you know, people didn't use that term. That's a very new term, natural wine. Our wines are natural wines. There's, there's all kinds of different distinctions in the wine world. There's, you know, like you can be Demeter biodynamically certified. You could be CCOF, California certified organic certified. You could be, um, regenerative farming is a new, new term, but an old practice. So a lot of these are just differentiating what practices you have. Natural wine came, it's actually quite involved story, but in the late nineties, a lot of wines, particularly in Napa Valley were really pushed to the ripeness level. So a lot of Napa Valley wines started getting scoring and some of the critics really loved very big, um, extracted wines. And so that would mean that the grapes were more ripe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there was a backlash to that. Sommeliers kind of were like, this doesn't really go with food as well. And that's when the whole in pursuit of balance movement happened, which was people kind of going in the other direction of picking grapes very, very early Mm -hmm. trying to, because the earlier you pick grapes, the more acid they have, the less sugar they have. So the less potential alcohol they would have. And so there was, you know, like everything, the pendulum swung one way, then it swung the other way. And then it kind of came into the middle. Luckily, now it's kind of nice and in the middle, which is good. The natural wine thing, there's no specific set of numbers of how much um, sulfur you can put in to call something a natural wine. There's no certifying body for quote natural wines. So, I mean, our sulfur levels are very low. I, they would be considered natural wine. People that use native yeasts, that's, a, that's a, a moniker for, you know, natural wine making. Mm. So those, I mean, we do all those things. I think just because we started doing it before the names yeah. came. So you guys are the OGs. <laughs> when we started in the Valley, there were a few, a few hundred wineries. I think now there are like 900 wineries in Napa Valley. Oh my God. Really crazy. Well, there's, there's money in booze and I guess people realized (laughs) and life in Napa is pretty beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's interesting too, because you know, when our our property was settled in the 1870s and our winery and home were built in 1886, we actually live upstairs and the winery is a stone cellar downstairs, tiny scale. We are also, which is a good distinction. But back then when they were, you know, like when the gold rush happened in the 18. 50s, actually the gold rush was, was quite a long period of time. They call like, you know, they always say 1849 is the time of the gold rush, but that was actually just one year that marked, you know, a period of time in the gold rush. Mm. But as settlers came out and then, you know, as the gold rush went through, they needed something to drink because basically at that point, water was not the cleanest thing. All the water sources weren't super clean. So people drank a lot of alcohol because it was safer. Mm-hmm. And so they planted grapes, you know, around the region of Amadora County and where all the gold rush, you know, kind of happened initially and the Sierra foothills. And then, you know, as they moved into Napa, they started, you know, as homesteading back then, you you had to provide everything for yourself. So you would plant some grapes so you could have some wine, you'd 
grow vegetables. You'd so here Antonio Carboni, who settled our property in the 1870s, he had Antonio Carboni winery and Italian gardens. And we have all these cool old records of him and the price he got per you know, for his peppers and eggplants and olive oil and all that stuff. So when we bought this property, we really kind of, I love to grow all different kinds of things. So we revived that kind of homesteading part. So we have vegetables again, and you sell those to local restaurants. We used to trade, but now, now we're officially oh selling. Be like, wait a minute, how many heads of lettuce did you bring me? And uh, right. what do I owe you to dinner? Really, so I got a little homesteading. Exactly crazy that people, you know, young people think, wow, Napa Valley is like really booming. What is that place? Well, at least people not from California, like back on Midwest East coast where we're from, but it's like, it really has always been this bountiful, you know, kind of garden of Eden. There's wine, there's fruits and vegetables. People are milling. It's like, it's always, it's always been that way. So yeah, it's, old nice news. See, <laughs> it's nice to see it happening even more and more. Like, I, I mean, I know you guys have probably had cowgirl creamery cheese and you know, out in West Marin, this whole area has more and more um, artisans similar to Hudson Valley, where you guys are. I mean, I think it's great to see a revival of small farms and small ag. And I think we all just support each other as much as we can, because big ag is getting stronger. So (laughs) So let's support small ag as much as we can. So true. Well, Well, one thing we can't do over here is, is obviously make the incredible wines that you guys can make over there just because of the climate and the soil. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, the grapes that you are growing? I know you guys are kind of known for, for your Cabernets. Is that right? Yeah. So we, Andy and I started, we both moved to the Valley with other degrees. So I originally had a French literature and art history degree, and he had a political science, Latin American politics degree. And, um, we moved out West and wanted to work. Well, I wanted to work in wine. So I came directly to the wine business. He moved out a couple of years later and we met and had both already fallen in love with Cabernet Franc. So we, we, when we decided that, and Cabernet Franc is a, is known or at the time was known as a blending variety. One of the Bordeaux varieties that was never really only on the right bank of Bordeaux um, where it was in, you know, in blends with, generally Merlot, um, would it be slightly more of a star of the show, but most regions it's, it was just in small percentage. The more I learned about it, I, I found it in France when I was living there and, um, in the Loire Valley living there. And then when I moved to Napa, it just kept, it just kept coming up and it was a very small percentage. It's still only, um, I less than 6% of Napa grapes are Cabernet Franc, but we, Mm. We decided that that was how we were going to start our brand. And, you know, it's funny you talk about, like, why don't you talk about the natural wine thing? When we started, it was like, you didn't want to tell anyone that you were from <laughs> native yeasts because right. they might not, you know, <laughs> you know, especially Andy who had, you know, he had his consulting clients and it's kind of like practice on your own time. So one of the things that we did with Bobby was kind of start experimenting with you know, greater percentages of Cabernet Franc and searching out really beautiful uh, hillside Cabernet Franc vineyards around the valley and experimenting with native yeast and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And Cabernet, I mean, obviously this is the land of Cabernet and it grows really well here. And so we eventually, we started making just Cabernet Franc, two Cabernet Francs, 
And then we eventually, you know, we, we were already making Cabernet Sauvignon to blend in with the Cabernet Franc in smaller percentages, but then we decided to uh, start making Cabernet one year when a grower who I was buying some Cabernet from came to do a barrel tasting in the winter and said, this is such a delicious wine. You cannot blend it with Cabernet Franc. You have to make a standalone <laughs> Cabernet, please. Yeah. And so that was, uh, that was the first year, 05, that we started making um, 100% Cabernet and Sauvignon wines too. We work in two regions in, in Napa Valley. Um, so Napa Valley is split. It, it's a north-south valley, kind of banana shape. The western ridge is the Mayacamas Range. And the eastern ridge is the Vaca Range, um, formed by volcano, all by volcanoes. And then Napa Valley split up into what's called Appalachians. So different geographical areas that are defined by geology and and microclimates to give a certain character of wine. Mm -hmm. So we make, we live in Coombsville, which is the newest AVA. And it's obviously, they've been growing grapes here since Antonio came, Antonio Carboni, as we talked about before, came in the Mm -hmm. 1870s. But um, it was the latest appellation to be named. We make a Cabernet Franc blend and a Cabernet Sauvignon from this region. And then from further north um, in Oakville, we make wines. And so it's interesting because the, you know, they're only as the crow flies, you know, 10 miles, 15 miles from each other, but vastly different growing regions. So Coombsville's all the way in the south of Napa. And um, really close to to the bay. So San Francisco, as you know, has the San Pablo and San Francisco bays. San Pablo Bay is the northern bay. And because of that bay influence, we just get really cool, cool nights, warm days, like you mentioned. And it's an interesting region because it was a volcanic caldera. They call it the cup and saucer appellation because it looks like a like a little teacup and saucer when you look at the aerial mm. photo of the geography. And that was because it was a huge volcano that blew mm-hmm. and then all that magma settled. And so it's like this really cool round geological formation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Super cool. And then it's about 10 degrees cooler than Oakville. So the wines each have a fun, unique personality. The Oakville is more kind of that classic Napa Valley power, powerful right. wine. And that's a really cool vineyard that's farmed organically and just beautiful red soil. And it's fun. So fun. When a wine is named designated from a certain appellation, is that because of where the grapes are grown or because of where the wine is made? Because obviously those can be two totally different things. Yeah. It's where the grapes are grown. Okay. If you look at the back of a wine label, it'll say produced and bottled by or produced by. So there are different the TTB, which is the, you know, the people in the government who tell you exactly how you have to designate all the, all the different labels, they have specific rules. So to be part of an appellation, you have to have the grapes grown there. So that'll be on the front label. So it'll mm-hmm. say like Cabernet Sauvignon, Oakville, Napa Valley, or Cabernet Sauvignon, Coombsville, Napa Valley. And then the back of the label might say produced and bottled by Favio Erickson wine growers, and it'll say where, and that's where the winery is. This year, what are you excited about making this year? And, and also an opening. This year is, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's interesting because 
the, every year, I mean, this is a cool time of year. It's spring. This is called the grand period of growth. Uh-huh. Wow. Vine just wants to like woo, bust out of the gate and just grow, 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 grow. This is a, a really optimistic and fun time of year. Every season is different. So this year, you know, we're dealing with a very low rainfall. I mean, normally we get 25 to 30 inches of rain, depending on where you are in the valley. And we've only gotten 10 this year. Wow. So it's pretty dicey over here. And that's the thing. I mean, you learn when you start in this business that you're, you know, you think you want to control all these things when, when you start out. And, you know, a lot of people that are successful in business tend to be quite fastidious and want to do things a certain way and you want to control things and you start working with plants and mother nature and you realize, wow, I am definitely not in control of everything I thought I was. So I think being a great farmer is uh, figuring out how to work with what mother nature gives you on any given growing season and getting excited about it, like you said. Right. Well, it's it's that thing where farming, of course, has always been difficult, but the complications of climate change, I imagine, just make it that more difficult, that much more difficult because it's also so un- become so unpredictable. I mean, what, like soon we're going to be growing grapes in the Arctic and being like, yes, and the, the new Appalachian, the Arctic. Yeah. So strange. Canada. They're actually oh it's a very uh, cool new frontier. There's a, wine, a couple really interesting wine regions in Canada right now. You're joking about it, but it's actually already happening. Wow. Yeah. Uh, since okay, since you mostly grow Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, and that's mostly what you guys are are well, making. We do, we do. We also make a, a really delicious Chardonnay that's um, from Coombsville, so this cooler appellation. Great, bright acidity, really beautiful wine, lots of minerality, um, and that's just from our the property that's adjacent to us in here so- in Coombsville. Delicious, and that's under the Carboni label. Cool. We have Alvia wines and the Carboni wines. Um, we started the Carboni brand uh, when we moved onto this property to pay homage to Antonio and his family and the American dream and immigration and all the wonderful things that, you know, happened before we got here. And just as a, as a reminder to, you know, that we're going to be here for a period of time and then hopefully someone else will be here. And so mm-hmm. you know, leave, leave it better than we found it. That's yeah. so beautiful. Sorry, I interrupted you though. I get no, going. No, no. I, I just go. <laughs> uh, we love that. We love that in a guest. It's perfect. The fewer questions we need to ask, the better. Um, no, I was going to ask like, what are other grapes that you are excited about that like maybe aren't super popular in the Napa Valley region? Like obviously we know Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, of course, but like, are there other grapes that are, that you feel like are coming up that are interesting well, blends or something? Good question. Yeah. I mean, we also make wines from Amador County from, so when I started as a female viticulturist, there weren't very many women in the business. And one of them who has become a mentor and friend is my is Ann Kramer, who has a beautiful property in Sierra Foothills called Shake Ridge Ranch. And so we make three wines from Ann's property and those are Rhone varietals. So obviously they're in California, but there we make Viognier and we make uh, Grenache, Morvedra and Syrah blend. And we also make 100% Syrah and they are delicious wines. This is a really cool vineyard. It's about 2000 foot elevation and it's right in the, kind of that part of the Sierras where 
because the Sierras go up to 10, 11,000 feet there, that cold air comes down at night and cools things off. And then Central Valley is at the bottom and that pushes the heat up in the daytime. So you get this massive, what we call a diurnal shift, which is the difference in temperatures of nighttime and daytime. So it could be like 50 degrees in a day. And grapes love that and keep, you know, we love balance in wines, which is a word that gets thrown around, but um, it's a very important practice in the vineyard is to figure out, you know, are you planting the right variety in the right area? Are you setting up the foundation with the rootstock and the trellis so that that vine will be a great success its whole long life, hopefully. And, um, and acidity is a, is a really important part of that. And those cold nights that Amador has for this reason. And then, you know, Napa, as we mentioned before, that we get the cold nights from the Bay influence in the Pacific Mm -hmm. Ocean. And so the wines are just delightful. They're refreshing. They're bright. They have a lot of depth, very old soils. It's it's right in the middle of gold country. So up in that area, they grow a lot of, um, a lot of great Rhone varietals and some older California varietals like Zinfandel. And then, you know, obviously there are great wine regions all over the place. I mean, I, I love wines from all over the world and all over. There's always, there's a wine for everything. That's the thing. Like wine can be really intimidating to some people and getting into wine can be intimidating, but anybody that makes you feel intimidated about wine is not an asshole. It's an asshole. And honestly not worth your time. So someone else. And the problem with wine education is that it wasn't what wine education should be is teaching people how to articulate what they're tasting and what they're smelling and how to be able to say, this is what I like in a wine. These are the characteristics Mm -hmm. that I like. And these are the characteristics that I would like to avoid. And that's really the basics of winemaking and excuse me, of, of wine tasting and wine appreciation. It should be totally warm and open. I mean, why years ago they made wine snobby just defies sense. I mean, also, cause like wine has been around almost since human beings have been around. I mean, like wine has been a staple of humanity for such a long time that it's such a bizarre thing to have been chosen to be made snobby. You know, it's like it, human beings love alcohol. <laughs> so why did we take this one that's been around for so long and say, Oh no, it's only for certain people. Like that yeah. knowledge is only for certain people. And it's infuriating for people that you know, we're out here just working our butts off trying to make the stuff and enjoy making it. And then it just becomes this whole like complicated dance of selling it, which is, it's ridiculous. Like it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, we make a product, people want the product. We want to just find the people that want to try what we, what we make. And and if they like it, great. And if they don't, someone else will probably like it. So <laughs> I, I just suggest that people really find someone who they feel comfortable with to just say, you know, like a little wine shop or even a winery that carries a bunch of different wines and say, Hey, I think I like these wines. Send me some of these wines or, you know, sell me some of these wines and then get feedback and ask them, say, look, I liked these characteristics and I didn't like these. So where can you take me from here? And, you know, that's how I started with wine. And also you don't have to use like the fancy descriptors of like, Oh, this tastes like crushed stones or whatever. Like 
you could say, you know, like if you're people, but you guys are, you're actresses. So actors, what is the PC word for that? I don't think we care either. <laughs> thespian. Yes. As long as you call us a thespian, we're happy. You guys know people, right? So you would say, you know, this wine is a very slutty girl. Her shirt is open. Her lipstick oh, is right. like, right. You know, it's over the top. It's like, you know, it's too sweet, too much, too everything, mm-hmm. too much for me, you know, and rough around the edges. Like, no, you you know, so describe it like that. Or this wine is like a beautiful guy in like a perfectly tailored suit and like, you know, what, like the slick neck, you like whatever your thing is like yes. very well put together. It's strong. It's tall. It's, you know, or, you know, so, like this wine is a crazy curly haired person and super <laughs> fun. And I love to go on a picnic with it, you know? So That's like a great idea for like, if you have a wine tasting party and you want to get people talking, just be like, just describe the wine as people, as opposed to, you know, I yes. think some people start getting in their heads when they're like, I don't know what I'm tasting. What is this? It just tastes like wine tastes like, you know, but, but really uh, it's about slowing down and experiencing and letting your imagination. Cause yeah, as you said, it's really about learning to express your thoughts and recognize what you're tasting as opposed to learning what something is and identifying it. Exactly. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. And honestly, when, when we all started, we did stuff like this. I mean, when I moved to the Valley, I joined a tasting group with a bunch, you know, mostly guys, you know, very technical group of winemakers. And I wanted to be able to taste with them and I didn't have the vocabulary. So that is how I started. And they just worked with me and they were like, yeah, you know, these characteristics that you're saying are absolutely that. And they're associated with these types of wines. So, you know, and that's how you learn. And it's a super fun thing to do. And it's also fun, like having a night, it doesn't have to be like a huge thing where you have, you know, dinner. You can also just say everyone bring wines of this category. Let's say we're going to try, you know, Chablis. So buy a Chablis, a white right. Chablis. And everybody brings their favorite or their whatever price range. And, you know, you all chip in or someone buys all of them and you all chip in and uh-huh. you taste. I think it's fun to taste them blind first because I think yeah. our senses are more heightened mm-hmm. and then, you know, and then talk about them and, you know, make little notes and say whatever you want to do. I mean, make it fun because it should be fun. It should yes. be fun. It's tasting and drinking. What's not fun about that? And the pairing thing, I mean, I feel like people get really mired down in pairings and making, oh, is this go with this? And honestly, like if it tastes good to you and, you know, you like it, then it goes, (laughs) you know? I mean, speaking of your opinion and pairing things, I want to know about like what, because you grow vegetables and fruits like what are you pairing do you you must have dinners where you're like you're drinking your wine and and eating stuff that you've made from your garden I know that because I'm really lazy (laughs) because I going to the store is like oh so well I'm mostly I'm mostly eat veggies occasionally I'll have a little fish or chicken but I'm not a big red meat eater but my husband loves meat so we have a lot of dinner parties because then he has permission to go out and get 
Totally. And have to cook it for people. So we have a lot of parties in Napa just in general because people here came here because for some reason they wanted to just like eat and drink a lot. California, we can grow a garden all year long because, you know, it's just there's always a season for the garden. We have like there's a great cookbook that I love called Six Seasons. And it's true. There are six seasons in in California for for vegetables. That was actually a New York writer. We grow basically two winter seasons. So I plant a winter garden in August that, and I do that from seed that food I eat for Thanksgiving and Christmas. So that would be like the leafy green vegetables and lettuces. And I put in broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, that kind of stuff, all the, all the brassicas and, mm-hmm. and greens and those, so you start putting them in, you put the seeds in when the, when it's still warm, but the day length is shortening like end of August, beginning of September. And then by November, December, we're having, you know, those lots of greens. I, the winter garden is my favorite garden. And mm-hmm. then we have perennial artichokes. So those start coming now. So then we have another planting that happens kind of October and, or February. And that's another whole set of spring vegetables, snap peas, snow peas, all the pea family. And then the, now the artichokes are starting and onions and, and uh, green garlic. And that's, we have a lot of frise and escarole. I'm, my favorite food in the entire world is soup. And um, <laughs> I love to make soup. We, we eat soup three, four times a week. And I'd eat it for lunch a lot of days. I like soup and salad are my two favorite foods. And I think you could have a dinner party with just soup and salad. And I generally do that when it's super close friends, like soup, salad, and a big hunk of bread or. Yeah. And I I know a lot of, there's nothing better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great cheese plate. Yeah. It's so true. It's really all you need. Really. Yeah. Um, What soups are you making? All time favorite cookbook in the entire world is clean soups. Oh my God. I have that. Rebecca Katz. It's the best cookbook. I'm buying it's it. Her magical, what's it called? Magic broth or something? Magic like. mineral broth. Yeah. Exactly. I grow a lot of beans. So I'm um many years ago I was at Blackberry Farm and met John Corkendall. This was a long time ago. He's their master gardener who's been growing uh vegetables in Tennessee for for his whole life. And he's a master of so many things. And he gave me some bean seeds that were collected in the late 1700s. And I have been growing them since it's a butter bean, it's a white bean, and it tastes like, um, it's like about half the size of a cannellini cannellini bean, but it literally tastes like butter. And um, I grow them every year. They'll be harvested in September, October. And then we dry them and then we eat them all year. So a lot of my soups um, have beans in them. And I love escarole. I grew up with what we called scuttle and beans. I don't know, like in the Italian family that I grew up in, it was scuttle and beans. So escarole and beans and Mm -hmm. usually a lot of garlic and some chili flakes. And um, you could put chopped tomatoes in a lot of, a lot don't ours didn't, but you can. And sometimes people would put sausage in it. We we didn't because I don't know. I was always a vegetarian since I was eight. But and then uh, yeah, I mean anything. I like blended soups. She has a lot of great blended soups. I mean everything in that cookbook is good. I've made all of them. 
Mm. I got really into it this year because my husband also, his favorite food is soup, which like when <laughs> it, it sounds so it's like, like, I love soup, so like, cozy, yeah. you know, yeah, it's co- so cozy and sweet. So I pulled out that book and was like cooking a ton from it. And I also finally got an instant pot, which then helped with my broth making, you know, but it's a great book. It really is. I love like a chunky soup. It's not just broth and it's not just pureed. Like there's something to chew on. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love it there. And she's got a wide variety. I always tag her in Instagram because I'm like, one day she's going to reply to me and come up. She lives in Oakland and she's like 30 miles from my house. She hasn't replied. No, she hasn't replied. I want to make a soup for her one day or or a salad and you can bring the soup. How about that? Yeah. Oh my God. We're going to tag her in this episode announcement. This is your challenge to come to my house and you bring the soup and I'll make the salad, girl. Come on. Okay, let's can we do it, Rebecca Katz? <laughs> we'll be in the bushes with binoculars exactly. documenting and making sure we everyone knows it happened. Well, more the merrier, more the merrier. I grew up, I'm the youngest of six. And wow. our house always was like so many kids at the table and so many people. And my mom grew everything and my siblings did 4-H and everything. So it was like, however many people could squeeze in the table and there's always room for more. So that's kind of our, our philosophy with, with dinners and we got to get out there. Sophie, another road trip. Come on, let's do it. Well, I feel like Napa's kind of, it's our place. If I may say so, So we gotta, we we gotta go go back out there. Yeah, we're due every four years or something. But also this time we can like actually come and visit you. And that would be really fun. Like, well, actually really somebody fun. that we know, as opposed to being like, where do we wine taste? <laughs> yeah. Well, and Napa that you, you know, that you see when you're driving up the main road is a very different Napa than the little back, the little back secret spots. There's a lot of cool. Sure. Yeah. People think Napa is just like one big fancy winery and it's really not. There are a lot of cool little hidden away spots that you'd never know were there unless you were there. Yeah. So true. So Definitely. like your tea label, Erda, should we move into that? How is yes. that for a, for a delicate segue? So why did you start a tea company? When did you start it? What are you growing? We know they're herbal teas. We can talk about regular tea, hot takes. All right, here it goes. I'll beef. I'll do it for five. I'll try to do it in five minutes or less because I want <laughs> respect. No you know, I mentioned my mom was a gardener and growing up wanting her attention meant that I would be at her side, you know, wherever she was. And she was always in the garden. If you can imagine six kids and no helpers, she was like, get me the heck out of here. (laughs) I'm going to be in the garden. So, you know, my time with her was a lot of times she would say, okay, so grab something and we'll have tea time. So it would be like, go over and pick some mint or some chamomile flowers or, you know, whatever rosebud, little tiny rosebuds or something. And we would have tea time and she would just put the, you know, fresh herbs in a pot and hot water. And we would sit and have our time. And it was my quality time with her. And she was so cool that like, I wanted to spend every minute I could with her. So that's kind of how my love of tea started. And I'm always cold. So I like hot things. Yeah. Uh, Even in the dead of summer, I'm drinking hot tea all day. So I, you know, I mean, when you're in the wine business, like the whole sensory experience is, is, you know, just heightened. 
I had two kids. So there were times when, you know, I wasn't drinking and wanted to, you know, really continue to enjoy that sensory experience and breastfeeding and things like that. So, you know, years of pregnancy and breastfeeding and stuff, you know, a lot of time when you're not drinking and I started to get into more tea. Um, I found San Francisco has a great Asian population and great Asian food and all different types and also great tea houses. And I met this amazing woman, Winnie Yu, who was a, a tea master from Hong Kong who had a really cool importing business into Berkeley, these Chinese teas. And she specialized in oolongs and and green teas from small farms, like, like our little farm, like tiny little families here and there. She offered a class where she taught. So tea, all tea comes from Camellia sinensis plant. And um, whether you're drinking white or green or oolong, pu'er, black tea, any of that. It all comes from the same plant. It's just processed differently. So some are more oxidized, some are less oxidized, some are fermented, pu'er teas are fermented. And so they're they're all the same plant though. My um, mind is being blown right now. Just side note for all of our listeners, my jaw is like wide open. I had no idea that they really? was all from one plant. No. Have you been to a tea plantation? No, I have not. Have yeah. you? That's I have. Cool. Oh my God. That's cool. Where? But that's like, def- that's in Kenya. I went and also in China, but like, that's the kind of the first thing they say is like, you may think that like an Earl Grey is not the same as a green tea is not the same as white tea. But yeah, like, I thought it was all like a different thing. Yeah. It's not, which is so, which is so amazing. I mean, it's sort of like Vitis vinifera, right. In a way it's yes. like, yeah. it's all the same thing, but it's just, but also it's so different. It's wild. You're right. I mean, it's just like the variance that you can have from the same plant is magnificent. So she taught this wonderful class and it was about how to prepare all these different teas and where they were grown. It was like a four day class and it was, and my mind was blown and (laughs) we just hit it off because she, she was a very clear purist in tea. So no flavored teas, no blended teas, all that is masking to us who are like super purists about things, you know, like, you know, you imagine amazing tomato, like you don't need to put anything on that tomato, maybe just cut it and have a little olive oil and a touch of salt, or maybe just salt, or, you know, you're going to have green tea. Don't put like some other flavor on it to cover the flavor of the tea. Not that those things aren't good. It's just that we like the purity of trying the, the, the raw material back to like mm-hmm. the raw mm-hmm. materials again. Like I said, she and I hit it off and she, she said, well, let's try to, I said, well, can we grow Camellia sinensis in Napa? I mean, I, I have, I have a green thumb. People say like, let's do this thing. So she brought me all these tea seeds from China and we started trying to grow Camellia sinensis here in different locations in Napa. We just got 10 inches of rain this year and we only normally get 25. Like they did not do well. They need a lot more water. They need, I, it killed me because I hate killing plants. I've killed a lot of plants in my day, but like it breaks my heart. Every time we see a dead yeah. plant, oh my God. It yeah. But um, it didn't work. And simultaneously I was growing herbal teas. I've always loved herbal teas and had them at night. So Winnie said, well, let's keep trying. You never know. We might find a good spot in a Creek or something, you know, or it's cooler. And so I'm still, I still am open to trying for her legacy. She 
sadly passed of a uh, very young, 47 years old of sudden oh my God. cancer. And it oh was so tragic. So part of me decided, and she loved the herbal teas and she wanted to, you know, encourage me and kept saying, you should start this herbal tea business. And at the same time, my mom got cancer and um, had a, a long bout with that. And she encouraged me. She said, you've always loved this herbal tea. You should, you should do it. You should start a little business. And so I just decided to do it as kind of an homage to her too. And, and I just, I love growing it. I mean, I love a learning curve and grapevines, you know, I've been doing for 25 years and, and I learn something new every single year, but, um, and on most days, but I just love trying different things. So with right. the teas, I just get this vast new world of a whole nother array of plants to try and things. And people will send me stuff. My daughter had a really fun first boyfriend who gave me some Greek mountain tea. He's a Greek and went to camp, cool. summer camp in Greece and brought me some Greek mountain tea. And I was like, oh my God, we need to find this. So his dad, this awesome guy, Minos Athanasiadis found me more information than I could. He literally translated these Greek papers for me to figure out how to grow these teas and here. Wow. So, yeah. I found some plants in, in Oregon, believe it or not. I couldn't find any in California, but I found some in Oregon and wild and propagating them and, and expanding them. So we have more and more of that. And I grow a uh, lemon verbena and peppermint and spearmint and chamomile. And um, we have a, so when we renovated our property, we did a full native plant restoration because we don't want to use too much water. So we only want natives. We could do a whole nother podcast on California native plants because they're absolutely amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just know that from spring, whenever it stops raining in California until fall or winter, California doesn't get a single drop of rain. Hmm. Not, no summer showers. Keep, so it, keep in mind the kind of plants that can only get watered in the winter and never in the hot summer. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Anyway, there was a native rose here on the property that I've restored and, and wow. all covered up and it's called Rosa California. It's a beautiful little five petal pink rose and it has a yeah. it's rose hips. So I've been trying to propagate those. They don't, native plants don't really like to be propagated. They kind of just want to be where they want to be, but I'm working on it. So anyway, cool. the, the tea is super fun. It's it's just as cool a sensory experience as wine. So for people that, you know, want to be able to smell and taste and feel texture and all that stuff about tea uh, and about wine, you can do the same thing, even with just herbal teas. And we have a lot of fun with it. So check out the website. There's a whole how to brew section and it's pretty fun. Lots of fun information on there really does sound like you live the yeah. best life ever. I mean, you're growing these beautiful plants. You're, you're, well, you're, you're really immersed in the earth, which is a really special thing. No, Very you're cool. right. And I do feel pinch me blessed every single day. I mean, I, I encourage everybody and certainly my girls to figure out what they love to do. Cause I lucked out and figured out what I love to do. And Andy, my mm -hmm. husband, the same thing. And you know, obviously there are things like dealing with employees and selling, I, you know, there are things about it that I don't love, but mostly it's an amazing life here. And I think a lot of people in the Valley have moved here for similar reasons. And I think people are actually really 
really awesome. It's a, it's a great community to be in and everybody appreciates life, you know, as much as they possibly can. So pretty cool. Oh, I feel like I have been on vacation just talking to her. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's contagious that California wine lifestyle, just her, her whole energy. It's so beautiful. What strikes me about that with her is like, it's not a cultivated thing, but it's like, it's so germane to who she is. Exactly. Yeah. I also wonder if it's a thing with our freaking generation and the one below us of just like the careerism and, and the like needing and the ambition. And, you know, some of these older women also like Renee Erickson, who we had on the show last week, who just kind of like let life happen. And of course were ambitious and wanted to be the best, but weren't like, I don't know, so single-minded and focused that they kind of lost who they were. Like these women seem so true to themselves and and kind of open-hearted and ready for life to take them anywhere. And that's how they've become so successful. But yes, exactly. Like creating natural wine without having to label it as like, don't worry guys, we're part of the trend. Ah, I mean, just a woman after our own hearts. So thank you, Annie. We cannot wait to come visit you. We will be taking a road trip very soon. And we will see you guys all, or you will hear us next week for another great episode. And we are also doing a thing on Pinterest with Peter Sohm. This will be our first foray into the world of Pinterest. So if you are on Pinterest, it will be on the 24th and he is going to be cooking and like doing sort of a cooking demonstration. And I think Ari and I will probably be sitting there drinking, watching and absorbing everything that he's doing, but who knows, maybe we'll... We'll throw our hats in the ring and try to participate. And also starting, I believe today, we did a collaboration with The Goods Mart, which is this incredible online slash in-person store in, I think, only in New York that sells Mm -hmm. like kind of high-end, not not high-end as inexpensive, but just like good snacks. I mean, all these things are popping up all over. There's a bunch in Chicago too of a different name. But we did a, a collaboration with them. We did a chip hour box that you can buy. Yes. And I believe everything that we chose is beyond shelf stable. So if you wanted to buy it and then use it for whatever chip hour we're having together next, which I believe will be at the beginning of June, um, that would be so fun. I'm like, oh, we got to buy our own chip hour box. Yeah, we do. We do. Um, So check out the Goods Mart and the chip hour box. And wow, lots of exciting things happening. This is great. We love you guys. See you guys next week. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.